0: Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Director of Sports Performance for Men's Basketball at Wake Forest University, Ryan Horn. Tuning into this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So, really excited to get Ryan Horn on this episode because I've listened to him a couple of times on other podcasts and been really impressed with firstly his humor, um, secondly, obviously, the information that he, can, that he delivers, and also, love, absolutely love his Instagram account. Where he documents um, some of the stuff they do at Wake Forest, and again it shows a little bit of humour, which goes a long way. So, in this episode, we spend a lot of pretty much the first half discussing how Ryan is assessed as a dire- director of athletic performance, and how he frames his success on a on a season by season basis. The second part, we jump into um, the, the more technical side of things, looking at strength and power in um, in basketball players, in collegiate basketball players. Um, movement competency, a little bit on technology, um, but the first half is pretty much um, how he's assessed in his position as director of athletic performance. Probably spent a little bit more time on that than I expected, but I think given the couple of podcasts that I've done recently with Keir Wenham-Flat and uh, Nick Grantham, I thought it would be really interesting to get Ryan's take on that side of things, given his position at Wake Forest.
1: Be able to, you know, shape your career around the life that you want to live. My family always comes first, and I know you brought up my, my wife and, and my kids. Like, this isn't a work-life balance thing, because this will never come first before them. Um, and, and it's not gonna happen. You can fire me as a coach, you can hire me as a coach, um, but you're not gonna fire me as a parent, you're not gonna fire me as a husband. So that's always my number one.
0: This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics, the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab are able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. Head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can do, I and mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter, at hawkingdynamics. This episode of the Pace of Performance podcast is also sponsored by iMeasureU, who are a world-leading inertial sensor and software platform which is able to quantify body movement and workload metrics in the field. So iMeasureU is used by leading biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. So iMeasureU recently released IMU-STEP which is a dual sensor and app solution for lower limb load monitoring and has been used successfully by practitioners to optimise return to play for running base sports predominantly. So unlike GPS, IMU step focuses on lower limb musculoskeletal load and works via two really small synchronized high frequency tibial worn sensors and these sensors can quantify three-dimensional force of every step an athlete takes precise left and right limb load asymmetry and cumulative bone load so iMeasureU was founded by leading biomechanist Dr. Tor Bazzier and was acquired by Vicon last year in 2017. So iMeasureU works with military, Olympic, pro and collegiate coaches and counts the Australian Institute of Sport, uh, Philadelphia 76ers and Harvard University as some of their clients. So if you'd like to get to know a little bit more about iMeasureU, head over to their website which is iMeasureU.com or follow them on Twitter at iMeasureU. So, without further ado, over to the episode with Ryan Horn. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So, I'm absolutely delighted this morning to welcome Director of Athletic Performance at Wake Forest, Ryan Horn. So, welcome to the podcast, mate. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to have you. I know you um, like to stay away from a big, long introduction about yourself, but. That's something that I'm really interested in, get to know about you and and your background. So just briefly, before we dig a little bit, before I dig a little bit deeper, just give us a bit of an overview of where you've come from, um, education-wise, and what you're currently doing at Wake Forest.
1: Yeah, I, I've been blessed to be in the, the field of sports performance or strength conditioning, whatever the, the hot title is nowadays, um, for over a decade now, and I've Across you know those ten plus years, you know I've had the opportunity to to make some stops at some some wonderful places and meet some phenomenal people. Um, you know, performance for me and strength conditioning has been a lifelong passion. You know, I grew up in a household where my older brother was a competitive bodybuilder, so my early introduction to training was. Arnold Schwarzenegger's encyclopedia of of bodybuilding and then all the flex magazines and muscular development. So I kind of grew up in that culture, so to speak. And then as an athlete, you know, I always really enjoyed preparing. I always really enjoyed what went on behind the scenes and the training piece was for me was not only something that to improve my athletic performance, but it was very rewarding from a personal standpoint as well, as far as my my confidence, as far as the way I felt as a person, as a player. So it's it's been a gift to me and, and I'm blessed to be able to share that gift with others now. So, you know, across my career, you know, I played collegiate football. It wasn't the most successful process due to some injuries and some other things. So I think that's where I really started to turn my attention to you know, the injuries I was facing and taking my love for preparation, then figuring out how I could put and help assist athletes, you know, in their day-to-day lives of, you know, really putting them in a position where they could be successful and sustain a level of performance that ultimately allowed them to achieve their individual and team goals as well. So that's kind of what, you know, the bug was for me early on. And then across, you know, the bridge, so to speak, is, you know, when I became a coach, you know, I've made stops at – You know, Robert Morris University, Liberty University, Virginia Commonwealth University. I was there for almost five years. I was a GA and a full-time assistant there. Then I left and went to the University of Tulsa so I could work with American football and work with men's basketball and women's basketball and a host of other Olympic sports. And it was kind of the next logical step for me. And that's where I met Coach Manning. He came on after my first year there, and and we hit it off right away, and and we have a phenomenal relationship, and we were able to do some great things at the University of Tulsa, which led to this opportunity at Wake Forest University, and, and I was lucky enough to have him bring me along for the ride, and I'm starting my fifth season now here at Wake Forest, so... Just really looking forward to every day. You know, I I have kind of a first day mindset as a coach, and I always tell all the people that we work with, you you can't lose the the anxiety and the attention to detail and the nervousness and the excitement and curiosity that got you in the field in the first place. And if you can layer that with a little bit of experience and kind of keep that first day mindset, I think you can set yourself up and your athletes up for success. So it's kind of where I'm at right now.
0: Love that. So, just give us give us a little bit of context of your environment at Wake Forest because this is something that I certainly struggle with. Because like I've been to the states a couple of times, but never spent too much time in in uh, collegiate environments. So, just give us a bit of a um, I suppose the, the guys who maybe haven't done that like like me. Just give it a, a bit of an overview of what your environments like day to day, staff wise, like facility wise. Um, I think that'd be quite nice just to paint the picture before we get into it.
1: Yeah, context is always always appreciated and and appropriate. So, for those that aren't aware, you know NCAA and and college sports in general in the states is kind of broken up into different divisions. You have your Division One, your Division Two, your Division Three. You also have some junior colleges and NAIA programs. So, there's a lot of teams, a lot of people, a lot of different conferences and divisions. Um, We work in Division One men's basketball. Um, We're in the ACC, which is the premier basketball conference as far as uh, Power Five or Division One high-level sports are concerned. Um, We are the premium conference, in my opinion, and a lot of other people's opinion when it comes to basketball. Um, The sport of basketball in general, typically in the States, especially with the sport of American football, you'll have a person that's just really devoted to training uh, the football team. Um, they're a specialist of sorts. So that kind of run the logistics and the performance side of things. They usually have much bigger staffs and they're really honed in and focused on developing American football players. Um, that was kind of the first step of that. But now you see in the States of basketball starting to bridge that gap as well. So you're seeing an increase in individuals and coaches that are primarily basketball only, um, uh, performance professionals. So someone like myself, um, I work with just men's basketball. So I have anywhere between 15 to 18 athletes that we're going to focus on. We have our own facility. Um, I am currently a part of the men's basketball staff. Um, almost like an assistant coach, so to speak. So that's kind of my umbrella or the tree from which I am under. And then I answer directly to our head basketball coach um, and then our athletic director. So that's kind of our chain of command, so to speak. So I'm a specialist of sorts. Um, Typically, in a lot of places, you'll see a a strength conditioning coach have multiple teams like I've done in the past, or you'll have some type of administrative responsibility where you're overseeing a larger staff or, or a larger team. Um, but our position or my position um, in particular is pretty unique. Um, there's a handful of across the country that do what we do. Um, and it's something that not definitely not the norm, um, but it's something that's becoming more desirable and popular as we move forward.
0: Nice. So how many coaches do you have working alongside you in men's basketball?
1: So right now, from a performance standpoint, I have a full time assistant, AJ Kerr, um, that's been with me. For almost going on three years now. And then we have a director of athletic performance that also works with our women's basketball program that oversees that piece of the preparation. And then we kind of almost integrate um, and coexist with one another as far as how to come up with the best facilities, the best resources, and the best care and support for our student athletes on the men's and women's basketball side. So that's kind of how our staff is set up. We'll have. Summer interns, spring interns, fall interns that want to come and learn more about the profession. But the core, the nucleus of our program is usually three coaches um, that are basically honed in on developing the basketball athlete.
0: That's So I've got, I've got as you, as you know, because I sent it over to you. But the list of stuff that I'd like to um, get into, but I think. And I've got a feeling that the the first topic that we're going to have a little chat about is going to hopefully, because it's something that I'm quite passionate about and, and spoken quite a bit about on the podcast previously, we'll take a bunch of that time and that's absolutely fine. And that's on Coach Health. And it's something that, like I say, I've spoken to Brett Bartholomew about and a few other guys, more often than not guys in the States, which is maybe quite interesting, maybe just my need for... Um, Knowledge on that set, on that, on that, on that, um your side of the pond. But in terms of you as a director of athletic performance, how how are you judged at the end of the day? Everyone's everyone's under someone. Everyone's got a boss. So how, at the end of the season, are you judged whether it's a success for Ryan Horn or not?
1: Yeah. I mean, this business in general, it's, it's a service inter- industry. Um, you're going to serve people on a daily basis, which means usually you're going to have someone above you um, that's ultimately going to basically hire, fire and sign your checks. Um, so when you look at the evaluation process, especially here in the States, you know, I, I see it as a, you know, a multifaceted, you know, approach. I mean, ultimately, if I had to look at the number one way, um, whether it's fair or not, that I'm going to be measured, it's based on wins and losses. Uh, is that necessarily fair In you know, in a, in a way, you know, are we responsible for what happens on the floor from an X's and O's and a technical and tactical standpoint? Um, are we responsible for recruiting? And, you know, so on and so forth. But when you are attached to a head coach, um, you have to take the successes and you have to take the failures. So there's some reward there, but there's also a higher level of risk. In a sense that you're going to be evaluated in more ways than just what happens within the four walls of the weight room and what happens in the training room and then what happens on the court. So, you know, ultimately, in the court of public opinion, that's one way, you know, we're going to be heavily evaluated. And then besides that, I think. You know, we're going to evaluate ourselves. When I look at my direct supervisor, which is our head basketball coach, you know, we're going to have, or myself personally, you know, I have a very distinct role and responsibility within our program and within the vision of his program. So fulfilling that role and responsibility for him and how I'm evaluated as a part of his staff is going to be different than how I'm evaluated from a sports medicine physical therapy, you know, a physio standpoint, my relationship with them, because that's a different entity. Um, and our working relationship as far as we how we integrate our expertise and work together to make sure our athletes are prepared and protected at all times, that's a little bit different of a, uh, a conversation. And then, of course, above us, we have our administration. Um, You know, our athletic director and our executive, you know, athletic staff from an administrative standpoint, they're also evaluating us as well, working with our head basketball coach and then interacting with us. Um, But the fact remains is, you know, it's not too common for me to have you know, an administrator at a, at a at a weight training session or at a conditioning session. Um, you know, so it's one of those things where I think as coaches, we have to be very mindful. And Bob Alejo wrote a fan- fantastic article about this as far as how we're evaluated and, and what our expectations are for our roles and responsibilities. But he wrote a fantastic article on Simply Faster um, as far as You know, how are we truly evaluated and and what should that evaluation look like? So we've actually taken it upon ourselves in in an effort to make sure that we're held accountable, you know, of, of coming up with metrics and coming up with pieces That really more encompass what we're responsible for is kind of like the pit crew. You know, I don't necessarily bring the race car in. You know, we're just, you know, AJ and myself, we're just responsible for the pit crew. We're responsible for, you know, tweaking and maximizing performance and and giving that car what it needs, or in this case, the human what it needs um, to perform in our system. So when you're looking at player availability, you're looking at time lost, you're looking at, you know, an athlete coming back from injury, how long does it take to come back from that injury? What type of injuries? The are you know are happening and what frequency are we seeing some type of trend of you know whether it's soft tissue injury whether it's stress fractures or repetitive stress injuries are we starting to see trends or consistencies in certain types of injuries um, that are either a result of you know volume distribution intensity and loading um, so on and so forth so we we have to find these areas to be very fluid and dynamic with what we're trying to do as far as our evaluation is concerned so that's kind of how we're evaluated, you know, you have your standard um, annual performance reviews, which I'm not a huge fan of. Um, You know, I prefer to, to interact with my own personal staff as well as our coaching staff and our head coach and our administration. Like I truly believe every day is game day. You know, I think you have to give feedback when necessary. I think you have to treat it in a way that doesn't let things just kind of sit. You know, the old adage that still water becomes stagnant. I think if you have issues that arise or you have problems or there there isn't a line of communication where information is being effectively disseminated, I think that's where you kind of run into trouble. That's when you become reactive when problems happen and we want to be as proactive as possible. So I think it's, it's on the coaching staff that's evaluating the shrink conditioning staff to to get with that person and come up with something they feel like evaluates them as a professional but at the same time we have a responsibility um, to make sure we're on top of it as well to make sure we're not only protecting our student athletes but we're protecting ourselves and we're evaluating ourselves so we can own our you know our failures and, and share our successes and move forward with it so long-winded um, that's kind of how we're evaluated Um, it's, it's definitely though, it's not something that's exact, unfortunately. And I I think that's why you typically can see some movement or people getting hired or getting fired, you know, based on a lot of different issues, whether it's results or relationships, um, that seems to be something that hasn't necessarily been standardized, um, yet, but I do think we have to devise some level of best practices to make sure everybody is, is being held accountable for what they're doing.
0: Mm -hmm. So forgive me if I'm going a little bit um, I don't know if I am or not close to the bone with with this next question, but with that, with the metrics that you evaluate yourselves on, where does that go? Where do, who who does that get passed to? For them, them to say that's good or that's bad. Does that go to administration? Does that go to a medical line? Does that go to coaching? Where does that go?
1: Yeah, we, we try to be as transparent as possible, you know. And I, I think you know we're going to talk about it later on. But even with you know, sports science and data, you know, whatever that definition is now. Um, but with, with, with tracking and with the information that you have and the objective numbers that are tangible that you can hold on to, I think we try to share that information in a way that's relevant daily not only with our coaching staff with all but also with our medical staff as well um and we're sharing those reports you know i I look at you know myself and i look at you know our our assistant and we we always try to get ahead of it you know we we really truly believe if if we don't have a plan and we're not executing that plan then we're going to be a part of somebody else's so I, i like to get ahead of it and try to get as much of that information out as possible to our staff and to our medical staff, you know, whether it's player availability, whether it's, you know, looking at our reporting as far as practices missed, games lost, type of injury, um, you know, our return to play and return to performance protocols, you, you have to be extremely open with those via email be a phone conversation, text message, you know, individual meetings, you know, I think all that stuff becomes highly important, but I, I don't think you need or nor you sh- nor you should hide that information. I, I think you need to bring that to the forefront and it needs to be discussed. And then it's our job as strength conditioning coaches and, and then the sport coach staff and administration um, to provide the necessary context to make that you know, hopefully make sense to everybody. Um, But, you know, same thing goes with our athletes. I didn't bring that up, but we also look at our athletes and we bring – our student athletes in, and they have free free reign to evaluate us as well. So we have an assessment that we give to them um, that they're responsible for having you know, free reign to kind of give us some feedback on things we do well, things we need to do better, um, things along that training po- process where they feel like it's going to help improve their game, things that they've done that they feel really helped them, and then maybe some things that they've done in the past that they didn't really like. But I think giving that athlete some investment and ownership gives us another vantage point to look at the same problem. So if we have this problem and we're trying to see this problem, I think it's our role as performance coaches and as strength conditioning coaches to work around that problem and find, try to find different vantage points so we can better understand you know, the issues. You know, It's a complex situation, um, but I think the more we can do that, um, the better we're going to be and the more effective we're going to be as coaches.
0: Mm-hmm. Just going back to one of your first points about being judged on on what goes on on game day like win or lose how do you how do you deal with that stress how do you deal with that that burden of like you've got a family you've got a you know, you've got a mortgage you've got kids like how do you deal with that stress knowing that ultimately you can do a fantastic job but if the guys don't
1: perform on game day like you could be out of a job I don't know. If, you, if you've got to figure it out, let me know. Um, I, I mean, if you got the answer of how to, to minimize that stress. But, you know, I, I think I, I embrace it. You know, I think I, I'm in this position because I work well and I, and I appreciate and embrace that kind of environment. Is it the easiest thing to do? No. Um, but I think you also have to be able to, you know, shape your career around the life that you want to live. My family always comes first. And I know you brought up my my wife and, and my kids, like this isn't a work-life balance thing because this will never come first before them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's not going to happen. You can fire me as a coach. You can hire me as a coach. Um, But you're not going to fire me as a parent. You're not going to fire me as a husband. So that's always my number one. I think when you look at that stress and you look at the pressure and you look at the wins and losses and those types of things, I think you have to focus on – what you control. Yeah. Are we going to be held accountable for ultimately what happens on the floor? Yes. But the only thing we can do is we have to be where our feet are. We have to control what we can control, focus on their preparation, focus on getting them mentally and physically ready to play. So we can try to have as, you know, a, uh, A higher level of, you know, impact on the outcome as we possibly can. And that means working with our assistant coaches, making sure we're recruiting a student athlete that fills and checks off the academic and athletic boxes from a profiling standpoint and make sure that, you know, we're communicating, you know, with our staff, but ultimately too, um, you have to be proactive outside of here. You have to make sure you're involved in your profession. You have to make sure you're doing site visits. You have to make sure that you're not only you know, securing yourself in the current role you have now, but also that you're diversing yourself outside of it to make sure you're staying connective. And then if something unfortunately does happen, you're just not left out in the cold without a plan. So I think you have to be focused on doing a great job where you're at and, and being where you're at. But at the same time, you have to acknowledge there's a level of risk there and you have to be prepared to, to navigate those waters if that time comes. But, but yeah, I think that's something that with the stress, I mean, it, it, it's necessarily part of the job and that's kind of what you you signed up for but you ha- you can't take it out on your family and you can't take it out on student athletes and you can't take it out on the people that you work with you just have to be able to control what you can control and move forward the best of your abilities but at the same time I kind of like that environment i think uh, it, it brings the best out of some people and it melts others um, but i but I enjoy being in this kind of arena um so you just have to manage it the best you can Mm -hmm.
0: so on the uh, on the planning for the future so should the worst happen that guys don't perform in the court um you know things take a turn for the worst what are the what are the things that you do to make sure that if that did happen there is potential opportunities that you could jump into and by that i mean like Site, I, mean, I know you mentioned site visits, but is there anything else that you do consciously to put things in place or try to maneuver things in your favor? So if that thing did happen, um you're good to go.
1: Yeah, this, this is a lot of talking about getting fired. Just kind of, I mean, you're I'm not saying, how, saying how, you, that you, you are, are. Like, I've got no, no, no say no, I'm messing with you. I'm just like, yeah. I mean, this is this is creating stress in itself. You ask me how I deal with the stress, and you're and you're doing a phenomenal job of creating it for me. I'm freaking out a little bit right now. But you no, know, I, you know, I think that when you look at it, like I know you've had Brett Bartholomew on, and you've had he was a great friend of mine, and you've had so many phenomenal coaches on this podcast, and I think we all have our own story. I've never been fired before. Yeah. So I'm also speaking from a place of theory, not necessarily from a place of experience. So I think, you know, like the old Mike Tyson, you know, adage, you know, everybody's got a plan until they get hit in the mouth. And I think (laughs) you have to do a good job of of making yourself, you got to stay connected. You don't necessarily build networks, you build relationships. And I think that's where social media is important. That's where picking up the phone is important. That's when you go to conferences that you're actually trying to, to meet people and form authentic, genuine relationships with them, because in the end when you do get, you know, fired, you're going to figure out who the people are that are also going to help you get your foot in the door, but also going to help you pick the pieces up, um, you know, if you do get the ax. And I think, you know, for me, I I read one of your posts the other day about diversifying your income um, and being able to have other areas, whether it's writing books, whether it's writing articles, whether it's doing speaking engagements, um, whether it's starting a website or a consulting business, like these are all things that excite me, not only for the fact that it gives, you know, somewhat of a a parachute or a safety net, so to speak, but because ultimately it helps extend my reach. So for me, I wouldn't necessarily focus on it being a source of income for me. The way my mindset works, I would focus on it as a way for me to cast a greater net to help more coaches. And then in turn, you know, maybe I'll be able to provide a level of stability, um, you know, financially and professionally, you know, for me and for my family to make sure that transition, you know, as good as it, it can be, but at the same time, I, I truly believe you have got to be as good as you can be at the job you currently have, and you have a plan in place. And I love working in collegiate basketball. I love working in collegiate sports. I got into coaching just to coach. Um, and if we were to come in and, and get fired today, and and I would have to you know move and, and figure out what I'm going to do next. You know, I'm going to lean on that. Network of individuals I have actual relationships with to hopefully put us in a position to where we can take another step um, and be able to do that. But I think it's an area. You bring up a great point. I don't have all the answers for it. I've never done it. So all I'm really speaking from now is I'm you know basically assuming and trying to figure out how I would necessarily handle it. Um, but yeah, to be completely honest with you, that's where I'm at. But I think if I was to constantly you know, think about, you know, is today going to be the day? Is next year going to be the day? You know, where are we at in our contract? Like, you have to be, you know, cognizant of those things. But at the same time, like – I, don't, I have everything I've ever wanted right now as far as where I work, you know, who I'm working with, you know, what our family life is, is going. And you can have everything and have a horrible perspective and have a negative perspective on it and completely take all the joy and fulfillment out of it. So I think it's a fine line of, of blending those two things together. Um, but, yeah, I mean – but to be honest with you, I don't necessarily have like like I said, I don't have a a consulting business. I don't have a website. You know, I'm not running those types of things. You know, uh, we're you know somewhat active on social media. We've made a lot of great connections there with people and and those types of things. But you know, I'm going to need to come through, and I'm going to need the people that I've came through for come through for me, and the people that I've leaned on in the past. You know, we're going to need to be able to lean on each other and get us back on our feet. So
0: we're not going to talk about that anymore. We're done. No one's getting All No right, one's getting good. fired. I'm not. Well, hopefully I'm not. I'm not getting fired. You're not getting fired. No one's getting fired here. Um,
1: <laughs> but no, I, I, will, can I, I will add on to this. I, I do think this is a phenomenal discussion because I've never been asked. I've yeah. been on, I've been on other podcasts and no one has ever asked me that question. Now, myself and our assistant, we talk about it a lot as far as, you know, where we're at, what our plan is, you know, what direction we want to go. Like, you know, I think that goes back to like, that's something we need to talk about. We need to talk about, you know, contracts. We need to talk about legal representation. We need to talk about chain of command and evaluation because ultimately everybody else is. And, and, And that's how you make sure you're not getting left out in the cold. So it's a discussion that needs to take place. It's a discussion that needs to take place, you know, in the light, not necessarily just behind closed doors. And it needs to be on the forefront. And I think older coaches and young coaches, you know, in particular, just getting into this field need to be educated on, you know, how to navigate those waters if that time comes, because you're not necessarily thinking about that um, when you get into it. So I'm glad you brought it up. Um, hopefully we can pick it up and, and make things a little bit more positive here towards the end. But I'm glad that you uh, you started off in the depths and the darkness, and hopefully we can pull Ourselves out of this and leave people feeling uh, somewhat positive about our field.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We're moving into the light now. I'll guarantee that we'll We'll move into the light. So on the training side of things, so 15, 17 guys. Where let's start off right at the beginning. How do you? How are you assessing where to spend the time that you've got? Because these guys have been, no doubt, been pulled for media stuff, for education, for They've got to see him, they've got to watch video. They've been pulling lots of different directions. These are young guys. So how do you assess and and manage the 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 time that you've got with them so it's it's maximized? How do you go about that?
1: Just to give some context, I mean, division one college basketball, you know, our guys are pretty much playing every day. They spend over 95% of their academic calendar playing practicing and competing in the game of basketball um, yeah. this is something these guys grow up in the gym they love being on the floor most of the guys are gym rats um, and a lot of their time is devoted into being better basketball players um, it's a little bit different than dealing with a sport like necessarily like american football where they're only spending you know approximately 60 to 64 percent of the year preparing for their sport so you have more time where you have less interruptions from a training standpoint, your window of opportunity to develop specific training qualities and to work on specific things without interruption is a far greater one. Whereas with college basketball, you know, you, you are put in a position where you have to be able to complement the sport and not compete with it. Because the game of basketball is always present. It's always there. They're always on the floor. They're always getting up shots, and they're always doing those things. So You're trying to manage that process to the best of your ability. So when you look at your annual plan and to give some context as far as how you know our year looks for our guys, as soon as we finish up the season, um, depending on how far we go and if we make it to the tournament, how deep we go to the NCAA tournament, you're going to get anywhere between probably four – to seven weeks as almost like a base camp or Postseason kind of restoration or transition block, um, as they finish up the spring season and head into their May break. Um, Once they finish up the spring semester, they head out to their May break, they're gone for approximately two weeks, then they're back for their summer training period, which is our biggest window for development, which happens at the end of May, and it goes through the whole entire summer school classes, which ends in the end of July. Um, But with rule changes, They only get four hours with us and then they get four hours on the court With their coaching staff. So, to give you an example, you know, if you get eight hours a week, it's four and four. So, when I say the four and four rule, that's what we mean. When I first started out working with basketball, the athletes got ten hours with us, and they got zero hours on the floor, where our coaches can make it required for skill development and team practice. Um, A couple years later, it went to eight and two, and now it's obviously, you know, then 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 now it's four and four. Um, So, it's in a position where. You don't have a lot of time, um, so you have to really focus on getting your big rocks in first, and then fill in the gaps with everything you know later on. It's like the old science fair. You know, uh, experiment where the guy puts all the big rocks in, and then he pours all the sand in, and everything else. and You're yeah. able to get everything in, but you got to put, but you got to put the big rocks. So it, it's an elementary uh, analogy, but that's kind of how my brain works, and I yeah. think that that's something we can tell our guys to to understand they're being pulled in different directions, like you already said. But then we're in season. Like if you want to be a basketball strength conditioning coach in in collegiate basketball in the United States, like you have to be a really good competitive strength conditioning coach as far as in-season is concerned because it takes up the majority of your year. So that kind of gives you a context of, you know, we don't have a lot of time. So when you look at your training sessions, I wish we could just set up a high-low sequence of we're doing this on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and we can just move all these pieces in place. But a lot of times, you know, you're having to, to formulate the best case scenario in conjunction with our practice and with our recruiting calendar. So you, like I said before, you have to complement it. So there's what we want as coaches. Um, There's what we can do as coaches as far as the schedule allows. And there's what the athletes can actually handle as a result of of what we're putting them through. So that's kind of the overall context. And if you have like specific questions, we can dive into those. But I don't want to go through a 52-week annual plan if there's specific points you want to cover
0: so we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with ryan hope you're enjoying part one so in part two like i said at the start we get into the a little more technical chat around strength and power training for collegiate basketball players some uh, some little chat around inertial training and why ryan values that that uh, modality so much also movement competency and a little bit further and a bit of a deeper dive on the technology that he uses and doesn't use But just before we do get into part two, I wanna say a massive thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So Fatigue Science have exclusive access of the SAFT model, which is an algorithm developed by the US Army. And if you listen to my episode with Ian Dunican, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So the SAFT model analyzes uh, a number of different factors in your sleep history to predict your fatigue for the day ahead. So the alertness score indicates fatigue predicted Effects on your reaction time your lapse index your mental output also all things that are obviously essential For the performance that you're going to undertake that day So as you can tell it is much more than a sleep tracking device However, it is a sleep tracking device, but not only does it track sleep um, it considers the Time you went to sleep, how well you slept, how much sleep debt you have, and even your local sunrise and sunset times. So, a really impressive bit of kit is the Ready Band from Fatigue Science. So, if you are interested in getting to know a little bit more about Fatigue Science, head over to their website, uh, fatiguescience.com, but also follow them on Twitter at Fatigue Science. Talking about the big rocks and the the science experiment, which I I quite like, I've got a nice picture in my head, so thank you for that. Um, (laughs) uh, uh, So what I was getting at was, are the big rocks for one guy different to the big rocks going into that container before it fills the sand as the other guy? And if they are different, how are you assessing how they're different?
1: Yeah, and I think that, you know, it's a great analogy because in a sense some guys come to you or they've been in your system for a longer period of time and some of those big rocks are already in there. So yeah. now you're working on putting the gravel and the sand in and then other guys come in from day one. And a little bit about, you know, basketball players in general, especially the way our AAU program is set up in high school. I mean, these guys are playing over 100 games a year um, since they're in eighth grade. Um, so they're coming into us basically um, with not very much exposure to an athletic performance program. It's not necessarily that they don't necessarily buy into it. It's just they just really haven't been exposed to it. So you have athletes that come in that, you know, are extremely skilled and, and they're elite skill wise. um, They're athletic. um, But that elite athleticism and that elite skill doesn't automatically transfer over um, to elite, you know, physical preparation or physical preparedness. So I think, when our guys walk through the door, you know, and we start off with athlete intake, as soon as our guys step on campus, and let's kind of give you an idea of how we do it, um, they start off with our medical staff. And once they walk in with our medical staff, they're meeting with our doctor, they're getting a full um, assessment and a, and a full physical to kind of figure out that these athletes are fit to train. They're getting a you know an EKG. Um, they're getting a cardiovascular screen. Um, when you're dealing with basketball players and you're dealing with African-Americans, especially guys that are above six foot six and all the way up to seven foot two, um, big athletes mean big hearts. That blood's got to go a long way. So you have to make sure you're looking for any type of abnormality, any type of genetic defect. Um, overall, we want to make sure we protect their livelihood first and foremost. Um, and we 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 got to make sure our guys are fit for duty or that they're fit to train. And then once they get cleared from a medical standpoint, they go to our director of rehabilitative services, um, our physical therapist, and our physical therapist is going to take them through a functional movement screen in a wide balance test that is his assessment of choice um that's what he leans on heavily he worked with robert butler um at duke and others so that's that that's where his wheelhouse is and it's something that he really leans on appreciates and understands and, and does a great job of of you know relaying that information to us in a way that's practical in a way that we can kind of enrich or integrate into our own program as far as what we do with the guys and then from there They come to us, and then, like I said before, we're the pit crew. So when it comes to a biomotor and bioenergetic standpoint, we're trying to develop an athlete profile. We're trying to develop a risk profile that says, okay, Ferraris burn tires, not Priuses. So, you know, where are these guys at? You know, what can they do? You know, what things are they getting on the floor? What things have they done in the past? Let's get a good training history on these guys. Let's get a good injury history on these guys. And then let's go ahead and take them through a basic biomotor and bioenergetic screening process to really see what we're working with, to see, you know, what they've been through, where they're at right now, and then where do we need to take them? What gaps need to be filled? So um, we start off, our guys will do a, a Sparta force plate analysis. We have basically two burtec plates. Um, we use sparta Science, which is a company out west in california um, that does force plate scans and analysis and then we'll take our guys through basically a, a vertical jump scan just to kind of see how they interact with gravity you know how much force do they can put into the floor do they do a great job of bracing and transferring those forces, and are they able uh, to complete that jump in a way that we don't get lost in the sky just looking at outputs? It's, it's, how do they get to that point? I think as strength conditioning coach, it's easy to fall in love with big jumps and fast sprints, and we want to make sure our athletes can do that. Um, But we also have to figure out, too, you know, where does the rubber meet the road and and how are they achieving those outputs? So we do a vertical jump scan on the force plate. We also do a single leg landing test on the force plate. We also do a upper and lower body sway balance, and that's all through Sparta Science. And that's like the initial intake with the student athlete. Outside of that, we're going to perform a NBA combine test, which is going to cover – um, some change direction, some agility protocols, you know, a, a three quarter court sprint. So, we're going to get some different biomotor abilities as far as how the athlete jumps, how does the athlete sprint, and then how does the athlete change direction and what does their, you know, reactiveness look like as far as from a base level standpoint coming in, what can they do as far as testing is concerned? And then, outside of that, we're going to do body composition testing. Um, you know, body composition testing is, is a good indicator of just overall health. And it's something that in our risk profile we we understand. And, and Charlie Francis made this you know kind of somewhat popular. But you know fat doesn't fly. Um, so you're kind of looking at okay you know what you know what does a student athlete's you know body composition look like? Is it a situation where every basketball player known to man is told they have to put on weight? Um, do they really need to put on weight right now? How do they do it in a way that's safe and effective, and that we're able to improve their performance and mitigate the chance of injury at the same time? And then we'll use a basic beep test, um, an intermittent, uh, you know, intermittent recovery test. Um, we use the level two test and then we'll use that as a, as an overall base of just aerobic capacity and and function as far as are these athletes in shape? Um, do they have the base level of of skills and what that profile looks like? And the great thing about this level is we start to recruit, um, and the strength conditioning coaches, best friends are the assistant coaches that do the recruiting, um, because they're the ones that ultimately are going to make you look really good when they're bringing your kids (laughs) in for you to work with. Um, um, and it's always funny, you know, you get some guys that come in and it's the light switch guys. The hardest part's just, you know, flipping the light switch on and make sure you don't mess them up. But at the same time, it gives you a profile that now you have something to work with. And we, we talked about this in that evaluation uh, piece where how are we evaluated? That's where I think testing and having a battery or protocols to say exactly where this athlete started out at. Here's where they are. Year one, here's where they are year two, year three, year four. So you have this this, this profile where you're able to look at objective data points and are these improving over time? What areas are we getting better at? Uh, and then we can move from there. But that's our base level of assessment. And then from there, you know, I'm a huge guy. In the sense, I think everybody is that that training is testing and testing is training. You know, besides that, we're going to lean on our expertise every day to see how these athletes are performing and how they're adapting to practice, games, training, um, so on and so forth. So that's where that expertise and our craft as coaches, as far as being able to have the hard and soft skills needed um, to implement that program. But in the end, it helps us not waste time. It helps us do the things that the athletes need to do instead of taking this you know, I, I don't know if you're familiar with it, uh, but in the States, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger's a pretty big action star, and you take this, you know, this, uh, this predator machine gun approach to training, when in reality, you want to try to take an aim small, miss small, more of a sniper like approach instead of wasting our time training different things. Let's try to isolate things that are going to make a difference for the athletes so we don't waste their time and we're not wasting ours. We're not just taking things from that adaptive or that recovery bucket, uh, which is ultimately going to affect performance in the long term.
0: Sweet, love it. Have you just out of interest? Have you done any, or do you do any psychological profile on the guys?
1: Yeah, we actually have a, a sports psychologist okay. um, that um, that works with our student athletes. Um, us personally, and even speaking with Brett, um, the king of buy-in and conscious coaching. <laughs> so I'll put a plug out there for my guy. Hell yeah! Um, but speaking with him. You know i I think when you look at that you look at that psychological profiling, um, it's important not only from a standpoint of how that athlete you know, needs to be coached. How they want to be coached emotionally, where they're at. Um, are they emotionally resilient? What type of background do they have? What have they been fed all their life? You know, a lot of guys been fed sugar or salt. You got to figure out. You know, what was their upbringing like? You know what type of things have they been through. You know, as far as their parents and their home life is concerned, or lack thereof. I think it puts you in a position to approach that athlete in a way that allows you to meet them where they're at. So I'm going to lean on our sports psychologist. I'm going to lean on our medical staff to do a clinical, um, you know, evaluation of that student athlete. And then outside of that, you know, it's our job as coaches to figure out, you know, what, what buttons you need to push to ultimately develop a relationship with that kid and develop a sense of trust that allows you to help them. And I think that's one of the questions that we throw out to that athlete from day one is like, how can we help you? You know, we're here to help you. You know, who was your favorite coach? One of my favorite questions to ask a kid is, who was your favorite coach growing up? And they and they'll start to tell you things about that coach, you know, whether that was a coach that he always put my arm, his arm around me, he picked me up from practice every day, he took me home, um, he took me out to dinner after games. I didn't have any food at home. Or on the flip side, you know, the guy was always screaming at me. He was hard on me. He was holding me accountable. You know, he was you know relentlessly positive, but he was unapologetically demanding. And you got you kind of start to figure out you know how they're wired and and how they want to you know be coached and how they want to be handled and how you need to be able to articulate yourself to them. So I think that just you know breeds on that emotional intelligence that a coach needs to have um, to be able to adapt and and be able to you know construct their message in the way that it's received by that student athlete and they feel good about it but it, this is human performance um they're humans first and they're athletes seconds and, and if you miss that and you just treat them like they're some type of you know we use analogies about race cars but if you just treat the treat them like they're a robot, um, or they're just here to go to class and play sports. I think you're going to miss the boat. If, if that's the fact that I wouldn't be in this profession, I think that that piece, you need to really treat and train that human first. And it's going to give you, you know, a much greater return on the back end. but yeah, we do some profile. I also think it's very important coming back from injury. Um, I think that's something when you look at an athlete that's been injured, um, you look for an athlete that's going through, um, you know, a a piece of, or a season of their life where they're experiencing injuries or not as successful on the floor that they want to be. Um, I think they need to have help working through that process of understanding, like at some point you're going to be what you used to be. That's the number one question I get with injured kids. You know, when am I going to be what I used to be? You know, when am I going to be me again? You know, you are you. You know what I mean? Like, this isn't your identity. Like, you know, it's like coaching. Coaching is something that I do, but it's not who I am. Basketball is a sport that they play, but it's not who they are. Um, so I think you have to be able to navigate those waters, but you also have to be able to destigmatize um, you know, just mental health in general, you need to be able to understand this isn't only something you go when you're in a rough patch or in a dark season of your life. It's also something you could use as a way to develop and gain a competitive edge. It's not a, you know, a reactive modality. It's a proactive one. So I think opening the door for those discussions ultimately will help a lot. Um, when you're trying to develop that buy-in and trust.
0: Nice. So one, th- one last thing I want to ask you, and this is, this is off your very entertaining um, Instagram account. So one thing <laughs> which I enjoy, so keep that, keep that stuff coming, um, is the use of the K-Box. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about why why you use it and why it fits the population that you are overseeing?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at any type of ISO inertial or, or flywheel to training device, you know, it's something that's kind of taken off. You know, you see a lot more of it, um, especially at the collegiate level and in a professional sports here in America. You know, early on in the process, when I first picked up a K box, it, it, it's a funny story. Um, a friend of mine by the name of Landon Evans um, that works at Iowa, um, he called me. And he said, you know, you gotta, you got to look into this. And I said, well, you know, what do we got to look into? And he said, you know, I, I really think that you need to look into um, some flywheel training devices. Um, I think it will really help. I know you deal with, you know, basketball players that have some issues, you know, whether it's, you know, patella femoral knee pain, whether it's a lack of eccentric rate of force development, um, you know, those type of issues. He's like, I really think this could help your kids. And I said, Okay and uh at the time I just called and I bought one um I bought two of them I never used it before never never even been on it so that's how much I trust Landon um you know it's also maybe not as fiscally responsible as I probably should have been I might want to <laughs> try it or uh test it before I bought it um but I I'm the type of person I I know I jump right into the deep end and and we purchased it so when we got it not really anybody else was using it um there wasn't really any teams in the US from a collegiate basketball standpoint um, that was using you know flywheel training in the population that we were working with and to be honest with you even the machine itself um, originally I don't necessarily think the you know it was built necessarily for these big guys you know these seven foot you know 270 pound guys so when we got it it was scary but it was also exciting at the same time because we were learning, on the fly we had no one really we could call to lean on so we really had to create our own experiences so it was cool to experiment and even starting off like how to use it how to work it how to put the flywheel on it started off where we were just doing you know squats on it we were doing rdls and then to the point where it is now where we've been able to tinker and use it with so many different exercises and we obviously we have a small you know a small group so we're able to maybe have a level of uh novelty that maybe big teams can't, you know, utilize it with, but for us, I mean, we went from performing, you know, five sets of six on the basic squat to performing, you know, triphasic-inspired training blocks to, you know, performing, using it as a way to develop isometric strength and use it as an isometric training tool, not even using it for a flywheel tool. There's so many different uses that we've been able to use it for. And what we found, and especially in the game of basketball, you have a lot of reactive elastic athletes. You have a lot of athletes that need the ability to produce High levels of eccentric force, but you also need to be able to develop that eccentric strength to mitigate injury risk. You have a lot of guys that are jumping, landing, taking off, changing direction, and very unorthodox and and in a chaotic environment. So the ability to not only have The horsepower, but also to be able to have the brakes needed um, to perform those movements in a way where they can put their foot in the ground and they can go make the crowd excited with what they're able to do becomes highly important. So what we've seen from using the K-Box and using flywheel training, we've seen improvements on the force plate. In our guys' ability not only to put force into the ground as far as their eccentric rate of force development, um, but also their ability to brace and then transfer those, those forces as well. So we see guys, and some of this is obviously anecdotal when you look at your watching guys train. But you see guys that don't leak out as much, um you know their transmission is is solid they're able to brace and transfer forces you're not seeing them, and we always use the term leak out um, but you get these guys in here that are really reactive elastic, but they lack you know, maximal strength, they lack, you know, eccentric strength. So they're kind of like Gumby. They're like really athletic Gumby. They're just (laughs) kind of, you know, moving around, using a lot of momentum. Um, And what you typically see is we'll have young guys come in with a standing vertical. They're jumping 26, 27 inches. And then their approach vertical, which means they can run up and try to jump and touch something. They're pushing 38 plus. I mean, there's a 10 inch difference in how they do a standing vertical jump compared to an approach or a max vertical jump. That's a lack of explosive strength and maximal strength, the ability to generate force and put force into the ground. That's a gap in their preparation. that's something they're not getting on the floor. So we have a responsibility as performance coaches to kind of fill that gap and figure out how to improve that and 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 the K box does that for us, and our guys love it, hate it at the same time. It's not as necessarily as intimidating as looking at you know a bar and a rack, but it allows us to teach young guys how to do the primary movements, but at the same time, train them with our older guys. It allows us to use, you know, more advanced protocols and techniques as far as using isometric and and more, you know, eccentric emphasis blocks, especially for the lower leg, the calf and the ankle, um, the ability to kind of load that area so we can put our foot in the ground and we don't lose it as well. So it has a lot of different, um, you know, it's a very versatile weapon, and it plays, a, it plays a role in a lot of different protocols that we use with our guys.
0: Superb. Well, I'm conscious that we're coming to – well, I've, I've kept you nearly for an hour. Um, so what I'm going to do, I've mentioned the entertaining Instagram account, so I might as well start there. What's the handle where everyone can tune in and, and be entertained?
1: Ryan Horn, 45. So that's R-Y-A-N-H-O-R-N. Four or five. That that would be the handle for. And I'm sorry if you're not entertained. Maybe um, you find it entertaining more than others may. So hopefully it's 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 also impactful and informational as well, not just entertaining. But uh, yeah, we like to keep it loose, though. Absolutely, and Twitter as well. Is that a good one for you? Yep, same. Th- yep, same thing on Twitter.
0: Perfect. Well, Ryan, really appreciate your time and giving up um, giving up an hour of your time in the middle of the day. I know you've got a busy schedule, so I really appreciate it, mate. Thank you very much.
1: No problem. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks, mate. Thanks for tuning in to episode 214 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So firstly, massive thanks to Ryan for giving up his time and answering some questions, some that he wasn't quite expecting around the um, around how he's judged as a director of athletic performance. But also massive thanks to Fatigue Science, for iMeasureU and Hawking Dynamics for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run without these guys, so make sure you check them out and um, visit the website, check them out on Twitter, check them out on Instagram and um, have a look at their products. Got some great guests coming up over the next couple of weeks in the weeks leading up to Christmas. I've got a masterclass coming up based on a couple of subjects. Um, So looking back through the archive, picking out the best bits and bringing them all in one episode so really excited to bring you that but make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player and I will speak to you next week